0: This week, a lecture about Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, and civil rights. University of South Carolina professor Patricia Sullivan teaches a class about the 1960s civil rights movement and the involvement of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy.
1: The problem, as you know, he told Kennedy, is that ghetto dwellers are often invisible thoughts unknown, words unheard, feelings unfelt. Kennedy conceded that lack of understanding of the bitter conditions that existed in these urban communities was deeply troubling and expressed deep concern to where this combination of factors would lead the United States.
0: Professor Sullivan also describes the racial unrest that took place in urban areas such as Watts and Detroit and the subsequent creation of the Kerner Commission.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, let's go.
1: All right. So again, try to listen up and we'll talk a little bit about it. See what you remember from the we are on the move for our liberation we have been tired of trying to prove things to white
3: people we are tired of trying to explain to white people that we're not going to hurt them we are concerned with getting the things we want the things that we have to
2: have to be able to function. By 1967, the freedom movement was changing course. Black people seek power, and they must have power to change the conditions under
0: which they live. Across the nation, black men and women
1: struggle for control of their lives. Through the ballot box, on the street, in the schools power, challenge the established relationship between blacks and whites in America. Yeah. Okay, so that's just a little review of where we were last week uh, with the documentary from Eyes on the Prize. Looking at black power, uh, Stokely Carmichael provides a really great introduction and what the purpose of black power is, how it folds into this part, this really folds into the civil rights movement at, at this stage. Um, so the years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, as is demonstrated in what we've covered so far, um, was a time of racial reckoning comparable to the years after the Civil, after the civil War. Um, civil rights legislation, as you know, dismantled legally mandated system segregation uh, laws and disfranchisement in the South and broadened federal protections of citizenship rights. Uh, Black power represented the broad-based struggle of African-Americans to define the meaning of freedom in a country where structures of racial inequality and injustice remained deeply rooted. Um, so this side, um, and this was most glaring in northern areas, this sense of racial inequality being deeply systemic and rooted in history and uh, society. Um, In northern areas, by 1960, nearly half of African Americans lived in northern and western urban areas and cities. As we've discussed in class, really across the term, the migration of black Americans from the south to cities in the north and west from World War I roughly up through the 1950s transformed America's racial landscape. While many left the south seeking freedom freedom from the terror and repression of Jim Crow, they faced widespread discrimination, resulting in overcrowded, segregated neighborhoods with substandard housing, inferior schools, and limited job opportunities. For many, there was a feeling of no way out. Um, now, in this slide, as you recall, you know, when we were doing the early 60s, we read an article by Gertrude Samuels, a freelance reporter who visited five cities uh, in 1963, in, in the spring of 1963. Um, and described, as the title of her piece said, uh, a report on the forms the Negro Revolution is taking against discrimination, economic and social in the North, and that this was even more crucial in the South at this stage. Um, And the two images, one shows um, a parent and children protesting outside the school committee in Boston against segregated schools in 1963, and the other uh, is in Harlem, confrontation between police and and a a man in 1964 around the Harlem uh, 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 racial uprising after the shooting of James Powell. So, let's see. The 1964 Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act did little to affect these conditions. For a minority of African-Americans who were prepared to take advantage of the opportunities created by civil rights legislation Uh, they could achieve significant advances even as racial prejudices persisted. But for the many trapped by generations of poverty and substandard education, conditions did not change. Martin Luther King observed, and again, we read this piece earlier on in an op-ed on January 1st, 1966 in the Amsterdam News. Uh, And you see it up here, the excerpt. With all the struggle and achievement, the seeds of freedom have grown only a bud, not yet a flower. The black American is still far from equal. He is straight-jacketed in the least skilled, most underpaid uh, strata of our society. To put it succinctly, the Negro in America is an impoverished alien in an affluent society." Now realizing that the civil rights legislation would do little to remedy these conditions accelerated demands for change and energized the movement for black empowerment. The crushing conditions in urban areas, and routine policing abuses, along with the hopes stirred by the civil rights movement, created explosive conditions. Robert Kennedy, who was elected to the Senate and entered the Senate in, uh, early in 1965, described a crisis that he called, quote, unparalleled in our history. So aligning with the black power movement, which we've looked at in some detail was a sustained struggle to compel white Americans to face the consequences of the nation's racial past and realize the opportunities created by the Civil Rights Movement to bend the country in a new direction. (coughs) Kennedy and King, each offered a unique kind of leadership in this regard. Both were shaped by their experiences during the peak years of the Civil Rights Movement and their grasp of the (coughs) depth and nature of a crisis that would determine the country's future. So today we're gonna look at these tumultuous years between 1965 to 1968, largely through the evolution and actions of King and Kennedy. Both men became iconic figures uh, in the aftermath of their assassinations, often obscuring the challenges and struggles of their final years, which were deeply intertwined with the racial reckoning fostered by the Civil Rights Movement. These years were marked by escalation of America's war in Vietnam, and successive summers of urban rebellion sparked by police brutality and intolerable conditions. So as the reading for today demonstrated, um, there is no clear path forward. Um, and that's sort of evident in the title. So a question for you all. A title uh, for the chapter you read on Martin Luther King. What, do you remember, what is the title of that chapter? Anybody? You
0: want to you repeat?
1: Sorry. Oh, yeah, descent into chaos. Okay, descent into chaos. Okay, chaos, right? When we look back at history, we see things as evolving. But really, it, it's, it's, so much is happening. And Ralph Ellison, the noted writer of uh, The Invisible Man, made this comment right around uh, the same time as King was, wrote his column. We are living in a time of chaos within the total political structure we do not have the political structures that can contain the energies set loose by the passage of the civil rights bills. So that's, again, black expectations and also white reactions, white backlash, uh, as the movement expands and um, its, its uh, demands and expectations. Um, so the Watts Rebellion in August of 65, again, which we've mentioned, but that is a pivotal turning point in American history and in... Uh, the Civil Rights Movement ended in the 1960s. Um, It was a turning point for both King and Kennedy. Uh, As you may recall, it lasted for six days, covered 45 miles uh, of Los Angeles uh, and beyond. Surveys estimated that at least 30,000 people participated, 34 people were killed, 25 of whom were African American, and more than 1,000 injured and 4,000 arrested. Now King, who at this point was planning a campaign to challenge segregation in the north, to take SCLC to a northern city and apply what they'd learned in the south uh, to conditions there. He flew immediately to Los Angeles and he walked the streets of Watts, the Watts community. He met with PAC community uh, meetings and heard the grievances of people and uh, the abuses they suffered from police as well as lack of city services and and, a litany of, of, of things. Um, and he was overwhelmed by what he saw and what he heard. Uh, in a stormy meeting with city officials, uh, the police chief, William Parker, lectured King that violence was to be expected, quote, when you keep telling people they are unfairly treated and teach them to disrespect the law. A shaken King told reporters after that meeting to treat this situation as though it was some, a result of some criminal element is to lead the community into a potential Holocaust. Early in 66, again, as you read in Adam Fairclough's book, uh, King took SCLC to Chicago, where he would attempt to employ the tactics of nonviolent direct action in a campaign targeting poor segregated housing conditions in what was called a campaign to end slums. He hoped this would enable black Americans to channel their anger and frustration into collective action aimed at securing change and improving conditions. So another question from from that particular chapter. Um, So what happened? Was the campaign a success? What were some of the challenges that King faced in Chicago? Page.
4: He was basically forced to kind of reassess his basic assumptions about American society um, because it, it wasn't a success um, for him because whites basically controlled and profited from these slums. And, you know, he basically said, you know, there's something seriously wrong with capitalism and, you know, a society without slums, poverty or unemployment, um, a society with free health care for all and a society dedicated to peace, but whites were not ready for deep radical change, basically.
1: Okay, so just a general opinion. Liberals in Chicago weren't supportive of his efforts, right? I mean, um, Mayor Daley was a much more wily customer than the people he had dealt with in the South. Uh, African-Americans were pretty cynical about using these techniques when the challenges were so great. And he said he faced a kind of violence that he, he hadn't seen before. Yeah,
4: Wasn't he trying to get Mayor Daley not re-elected?
1: Well, he thought maybe, you know, the pressure if Daley did not, uh, come through. But of course, May Daly was reelected and he had significant black support. You know, people are tied into political patronage. So, it, but, but as you said, Paige, he re, it made him confront, re, really reassess his understanding of race in America and the, and the depth of the structures of racism in these cities and what it would take to actually create change at a time when the pressures were really high. Again, in the wake of Watts and the sense of, um, that these tensions. Uh, would continue uh, to explode unless some change uh, was secured. So it was during this time, and in this image, actually, he's stoned during a march, um, and his aides are trying to protect him uh, during that, and here he is giving a talk in Chicago. So Chicago was a sobering experience. He he was there in through the summer, um, and during this time in June, as we discussed, he goes to Mississippi to join... uh, Stokely Carmichael, Floyd McKissick, and other activists who pick up after uh, James Mer- Meredith was shot uh, with this march against fear through Mississippi. Um, and I think it's just good to remember uh, the kind of relationship King developed with Stokely Carmichael, uh, and Cleve Sellers, who told us that, about that when he came to class on Thursday during this march, how, how relaxed King was, how how just glad he was to be Going to Mississippi, being greeted by, you know, African Americans in, in these rural communities, and um, and even though this was the the march where because of police harassment and being evicted from the school where they set up their camp overnight, and all kinds of um, problems with the police, uh, Carmichael had been arrested for several hours, and he came out of that, went to a major rally in Greenwood, and issued a call for Black Power, um, and. You know, that is, well, we've talked about that, but it, it's, um, you know, it represented an approach that had, SNCC had been using, you know, black empowerment for a number of years, but it's really captured the attention of the nation and, and got a real reaction. And what was King's view of, I mean, do you recall from that account, King's response to black power? Anybody? Um, are you talking about the account they talked about in the Cleveland Sellers book? Like, Either Cleveland Sellers book or Stokely Carmichael's
2: book. I, rem- I remember in that book, um, Sellers mentioned that he was talking to King and, like presenting these ideas. And King was basically saying how like, it might work. He kept insisting that like it could be an option, but it's not necessarily
1: like OK. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he was open to it, right? And I think, yes. Yeah. Hey, Haley. In the Stokely
2: Carmichael account, I remember that uh, he had a quote from King that said, like, people who have power don't speak of their power. So he just was saying that, like, the movement should speak for itself. They don't have to call it power. Okay.
1: Okay. but Really good points. And so, you know, it's just a question of tactics, right? And, and, and also, King felt that the reaction of white liberals to that and to the press, and he was correct. I mean, people reacted in a way that that means what? that's kind of racism, that means separatism, and all these alarming things. Whereas you saw what Carmichael said at the beginning of that clip, what it meant. It was about organizing the community, black empowerment, and even King, you know, so King, after that march, he would constantly, reporters would ask him what he thought about black power. He never dismissed it, right? He changed the conversation. And um, at one point, uh, he said, I'm going to get this quote correct. Um, oh, let's see. Yes, he said, uh, he turned the question around, and he would answer by pointing to the poverty and injustice that endured in America and, uh, and the need for a militant thrust forward. So he's talking about militancy, something more militant has to happen, and you know what you call it to him, again, that could be a distraction. And the press really harped on that. And, of course, that was a story about the March Against Fear, which one is about much more than that. Voter registration, the harassment they experienced, and, again, the kind of camaraderie between uh, the various representatives of the movement. Uh, So Robert Kennedy, as I mentioned, he took his seat. He had been Attorney General under his brother and stayed until August of '64. Then he ran for the Senate from New York and entered the Senate in... uh, in January of 1965. And he begins to move on a parallel path with King during these years. Uh, Now, as Attorney General in JFK's administration, he was shocked to witness the depths of the poverty and racial segregation in urban areas outside of the South. And he was influenced by James Baldwin's essay in the New Yorker in November of 1962 that ended up providing the basis for the fire next time. Kennedy spoke in this very room in the spring of 1963 when he came to South Carolina. And focusing, talking to Southerners, white Southerners, focusing on the consequences of racial discrimination, he emphasized the North as well as the South, right? USC wasn't desegregated yet. So he's telling people, we've got to move, you know, these things have to happen, voting rights, but that this problem is not just Southern, it's national. And then he said, time is running out fast for this country. Okay. So here's a sense, again, of that this, it's so deep, so wide, and that white America is so really ignorant of our history and of the need to really uh, move forward uh, on all fronts.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Now, in the aftermath of Watts, Kennedy pushed back on the call for law and order, which was the dominant response across the political spectrum from Democrats to Republicans. He said, there is no point in telling Negroes to obey the law. To many Negroes, the law is the enemy. In Harlem, Bedford-Stuyvesant, it has almost always been used against him. And he would elaborate on this point in speeches before white groups, noting that he was not only talking about the police. He said the law did not protect African Americans from unscrupulous landlords, um, substandard living conditions, and merchants who cheated black customers. Quote, we have a long way to go before before the law means the same thing to a black man as it does to us. Kennedy went to Watts with his aide, Peter Edelman, just the two of them. They were in L.A. He said to Peter, let's go to Watts. They jumped in the taxi and they rode to the center of Watts and walked around. Saw. Peter said it was like seeing a burned out area, a war-torn area in your own country. I mean, just the wreckage was throughout. Uh, And they talked to people and asked them about their lives and what, and really the Every, almost everyone talked about it. no jobs, low-paying jobs, you know that, that, that condition persisted. No changes after, after Watts. Um, he began supporting a group that was founded in the aftermath of, of the rebellion, the Watts Writers', Watts, Watts Writers Workshop, um, which was created for young residents of Watts and became a major part of the black arts movement. Kennedy supported sent money, visited with them, and even campaigned there when he was running for president in 68. So he's connecting with these forces that are helping to build up these communities and supporting young, young black people. Now when he was queried about black power, get my thing. Um, he, uh, in the wake of the Meredith March, he said, well, you, you can interpret black power in many ways. Uh, and It could raise, he said, tactical concerns, because he felt that the future of the country depended on black and white people working together. Um, But, he said, uh, he praised the march, the march against fear, for demonstrating that black citizens would keep up their efforts um, for full equality, Uh, and until they established full equality. And he himself embraced black self-determination and community um, empowerment, uh, which was evident in in the Bedford-Stuyvesant Project, which was an innovative uh, redevelopment project that was run by people in the community. They'd raise money from the federal government, philanthropy, businesses, and people in the community would develop plans for renovating homes, uh, education programs, job training, and the rest. Uh, But what's particularly interesting is that Kennedy... Uh, had been to South Africa, a very famous trip to South Africa in June of '66, when he was invited by anti-apartheid student group. And remarkable trip where he makes these comparisons between America and South Africa and the struggles that both countries have to overcome. Uh, and so, what he was most concerned when this conversation about, about Black Power would come up was about whites. You know, white, what are white people thinking? And um, and white attitudes, white ignorance. He talked about the ghetto of our ignorance and backlash, you know, this kind of supporting politicians who play on those fears and resentments. And so there was a cover story, and look, here he is in Bed Stuy. I just put that up there because um, I mentioned that, that picture. But this um, article, Suppose God is Black, front page on Life magazine, one of the popular magazines like People magazine today. Suppose God is Black by Robert Kennedy, (laughs) and then you went inside the magazine, and he was writing about his his trip to South Africa, and this exchange he had with um, an Africana who justified apartheid talking about the Bible. And this is what he said, but suppose God is black. What if we go to heaven, and we, all of our lives, have treated the Negro as an inferior, and God is there, and we look up, and he's not white. What is our response then? Okay. And that sort of comment in the Summer of Black Power provided a different angle of vision. The third successive wave of urban uprisings, raising from, ranging from Omaha, Nebraska, Des Moines, Iowa, to Chicago, Cleveland, Brooklyn, Troy, New York, and a number of other, of other cities. President Johnson had been mostly silent about these uprisings and, and the crisis behind them. And was increasingly obsessed with the war in Vietnam. During, his, during 1966, his administration doubled the budget, the projected budget for military aid, uh, by $10 billion. That's five times what the administration spent on anti-poverty programs that year. Um, and of course, um, Johnson's war on poverty uh, began with high hopes, um, spoke out, when, when press, he was giving a speech on Vietnam and reporters wanted to know what do you think about what's going on and, and he says this, Negro riots threaten to jeopardize civil rights gains Okay. Uh, and response on to wh- whether black power or riots will create new anta- antagonisms among whites, look at what he says I'd like you to read that and tell me what you think about that what is he saying you must recognize that while there's a Negro minority of 10% in this country, there's a minor- majority of 90% that is not Negro. Whites have come around, have come around to the viewpoint uh, of wanting to see equality and justice given to their fellow citizens. But they want to see it done under, a law, under law and in an orderly manner. What does that suggest he understands or doesn't understand at this point after you see where we've come? by 1966. Anybody? How is it different from King and Kennedy's assessment of?
0: Um, it really seems a lot like the, the sort of old way of thinking of like, oh, it's a privilege that you get to like have these things like equality and good schools and et cetera. Now, um, whenever it's supposed to be the opposite of that, of like, no, you deserve this because you're a human, not just because, you know, white people decided one day to like think that you deserved something. And that really seems a lot like the the old mindset of that, which okay. is disturbing. So we'll
1: take it right. Yeah. It, not, don't
0: okay. Okay. He's also directly contrasting what... Uh, Kennedy said about how he, we need to move away from law and order as a solution. and He's saying this is exactly what we
1: need, law without violence, and totally undermining the entire civil rights movement. Okay. okay. Anybody else? Zach? He,
3: he's showing that he doesn't understand American poverty and that he's articulating this vision of, of legal integration and legal equality and saying that we've done it, you have rights, let's stop. We're done. You know, he, hes hes ending the war. He's declaring, you know, that it's over. So he's—he's he's illuminating his un, his lack of understanding, be, being that he'd never been to these communities um, of poverty, and that he's articulating a vision of of you know a, a stratified legislative, you know, uh, victory over oppression.
1: Okay, is this surprising? I mean, Johnson signed the Civil Rights Legislation, the Voting Rights Act, but again, he saw that. At, yes, Rachel.
0: I
3: almost wonder if there's a layer of, like, political self-interest here, right, that he wants to, like, in his analysis, if the law was the only barrier to true social equality, like, and he fixed the law, then he fixed racism, basically, and he can claim credit for that. Whereas if he extends his analysis, right, like, he has to reckon with the fact that he didn't do enough.
1: Or he could, right? One person, that's very well, well put as well. I mean, this measuring. Look, look at what I've done. And that's what he said after the Watts uprising. He said, after all I've done, after all I've done, look at this. And the disconnect between law that opens it up and then the reality of how do you actually enact this and deal with the the generations of exclusion and the consequences. So that's going to play out as we continue on. This is Johnson's point of view. He's the president. And you have people like King and Kennedy, very high profile, powerful people really pushing in another direction um, during this period. And Interestingly, again, in the summer of 66, this changes as things escalate, but in the summer of 66, major newspapers placed blame on the Johnson administration. Um, Thomas Foley of the Washington Post noted that a third summer of riots shows that the bargain basement penny-pinching approach does not work. The New York Times editorialized that the Johnson administration talked good programs would set the targets far too low. It is not the riots in the slums but these lame and inadequate programs that are the real disgrace of the richest nation on earth. Foley cautioned, and I think this is really prescient, as the riots flare from city to city, the bitterness becomes more deep-seated, leading to a breakdown in communication between the races, then political action becomes impossible. So that notion, Ellison, how do we build the political structures, right? And it's part of recognizing this, not pushing it away. Um, later that summer, 66, and 66 is really a, a rich year uh, where things are pretty fluid and there seems like there's some possibility, um, the Senate Government Operations Committee held a remarkable series of highly publicized hearings on the crisis in American cities. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy sat on the committee and worked very closely with the chairman, Abe Rubikov, of Connecticut uh, in organizing uh, the, the testimonies. Close to 100 witnesses testified over a six-week-long period. The New York Times compared it to a six-week-long seminar. Witnesses included civil rights leaders, city planners, labor leaders, housing experts, foundation officials, police officers, mayors, clergy, government officials, and others. Uh, The hearings covered a wide range of subjects, but Kennedy and Ribikov identified the most immediate and pressing problem as the conditions of life for for the majority of black Americans living in urban areas. Kennedy led off, as a senator from New York, he came down from the Senate and sat in the witness chair, and he was the first one to testify. Uh, Just give you a few highlights, he really laid everything out. Um, He talked about uh, the root causes of the urban crisis, starting with federal policies around highway construction and housing, and the entrenched system of segregation and discrimination that had, um, uh, that had grown up over generations and the consequences. Endemic poverty and rampant unemployment. And these are some of the things he pointed out. One-third to a half of ghetto residents live in poverty that was left off. 43% of housing was substandard. Education was segregated, unequal, and inadequate, with a high school dropout rate as high as 70% and infant mortality two times the national average. And this is you know, his vision. We need, uh, he insisted that we needed more than poverty programs, housing programs, and employment programs, though we needed all of them. We will need an outpouring of imagination, ingenuity, discipline, and hard work. And again, community action, black empowerment. As and he insisted, communities must play a central role in developing and implementing programs. People acting on matters of mutual concern with the power and resources to affect the conditions of their own lives. Um, So uh, during the course of the hearings, um, um, they they would have mayors testify. They had Sam Yorty from L.A. who was just unrepentant. (laughs) And they had the mayor of Cleveland where there had been a major uprising that summer. And the mayor comes in, and he starts saying, well, communists are behind this, and criminal elements are behind this. And Kennedy has all the reports from Cleveland on housing, on unemployment, on schools, and he chapter and verse, he describes to the mayor the conditions in his city. And the mayor said, well, I guess we don't, we'd have, you know, we don't need communists. They're not the cause. And he just sort of backed up. It just put the information before him. But at the same time, he's putting the information before the country. So these hearings are really – and what's surprising to me as a historian, little is known about these. I mean, they're volumes. And the current Commission report goes over this territory in about two years down the road. But they are really putting forward the crisis, the problem, defining what needs to be done, and showing the tremendous limitations of the poverty programs that are not integrated, they're not holistic. They're just, you know, not enough, and not well coordinated. Um, the last person to testify, and the last hearing was in December, was Martin Luther King. And, um, and it was really to see King and Kennedy, you know, in, in conversation uh, in this hearing room at the end of six weeks of these, these remarkable uh, exploration of, of the issues and the problems. Kennedy, I mean, King described this time in Chicago uh, and said so it was the first time he had experienced uh, the grinding poverty, exploitation, and despair that prevailed in urban neighborhoods. King and his family moved into the west side of Chicago and lived like a member of the community and really felt that there was a, an uprising that summer uh, while they were there, so he really felt it um, in a way that, that just accelerated his, his efforts. Um, he... Um, he observed, again, and King on Vietnam, he's, sort of, he's, he's spoken out, he's pushing for negotiations, but he's careful not to take the attention off of the issue of racial equality and the problems, the many problems they're facing. But in this hearing, he observed that the Johnson administration spent liberally on a war in Vietnam where American security was not at stake, and he questioned the wisdom of a conflict justified by vague commitments to a reactionary regime. And this is a famous quote from King. The bombs of Vietnam exploded home, destroying the hopes and possibilities of decent Americans. Meanwhile, he said, the war on poverty was scarcely a skirmish. At no time has a total total coordinated and fully adequate program been conceived. Kennedy asked King, and there's an interesting back and forth between the two of them, but he asked King what he thought, the extent of poverty and alienation was understood outside of of ghetto areas. To what extent did people really understand that? Uh, Not at all, said King. The problem, as you know, he told Kennedy, is that ghetto dwellers are often invisible. Thoughts unknown, words unheard, feelings unfelt. Kennedy conceded that lack of understanding of the bitter conditions that existed in these urban communities was deeply troubling and expressed deep concern to where this combinations of factors would lead the United States. Riots, King famously warned, in the final analysis, turn out to be the language of the unheard. Uh, So we're coming to the end of 66, and again, the chronology here is important, um, and I'm not gonna go into detail, but during the fall of 66, Robert Kennedy makes a really important speech at UC Berkeley. He talks to 15, more than 15,000 students crowded outside in the Greek theater. Um, and I think what's really interesting about it, you know, the anti-war movement is full steam ahead. Students, and these is probably mostly white students, are really involved in the anti-war movement. What does he say in that speech that a, any of you that, that struck you as where his focus is and what he wants these students to pay attention to? Anybody? There's, there's, yeah. Hey.
4: Just- Just one of, like, his final quotes kind of got me is, um, you have the opportunity and the responsibility to help make choices that will determine the greatness of the nation. Okay. So I think that, you know, he's really speaking to these students about what's going on and, you know, majority white students who, you know, have an opportunity to create change and make change, but they have to make that choice for themselves, basically.
1: No, that's a real theme. I mean, he talked, he talked a lot to college audiences because he really looked to young people, and it's true, as a future, you know, uh, hopeful, and especially young people who have the opportunity of a college education, you know, and there was a sense then that you owe, you know, you owe. Uh, you need to use that uh, to really help imagine a way forward and work collaboratively to do that. Um, so that's an important point. And one of the things, it's a long speech that really stood out to me, again, underscoring what, uh, he said, what we, we came here to talk about, the most important thing facing us and you, students, is the revolution within our gates. The challenge we have gathered here to consider, the struggle of the Negro American for full equality and full freedom. The revolution within our gates. I mean, Kennedy is opposed to the war. He, he's supportive of challenges. He's working in the Senate. But this is, and of course, we, we're here today. And we're looking at all the things that carry through from this period um, that continue to affect us. Yet.
4: Um, to where he speaks about, you know, give every Negro the same opportunity as every white man to educate his children, provide for his family, live in a decent home, and win human acceptance. And I think that that is really, like, was really key oh, for me.
1: And he's educating them. You know, these students haven't been to a community, a poor community, probably, maybe some, but doubtful, you know. So he's trying to open their eyes, get them concerned, and, and really give them an understanding of what the challenges are. Not just for, you know, for the country, for the future direction of the country. Um, okay. All right. Um, now, by 67, so we're shifting into 67. And things really, I mean, chaos is a word. I mean, things feel like they're coming apart. The war, Lyndon Johnson has... Close to 400,000 ground troops in Vietnam. The anti-war movement is growing exponentially and broadening out. Again, so the majority of Americans still support the war, right? countries at war, but there's a very active, vocal, and growing anti-war movement. Um, And racial disturbance that summer would break out in more than 150 cities. Um, The nation really seemed to be coming apart at the seams. Now, King as I mentioned, had voiced concerns about Vietnam. Uh, as soon as the bombing began, Lyndon Johnson Americanized the war and he sent ground troops and began a bombing campaign uh, that really pulled us into the war uh, fully. Um, and so King uh, called for negotiations, but again, he was hesitant because again, speaking out against the war, you, you know, it, it just distracts from the issue, the main issue you're concerned about. But it really it stuck with them. SNCC uh, in January of 1966 asked after one of their, um, uh, I'll try, it was Jimmy Jackson, I think, Jimmy Lee Jackson, no, I think, Sammy Young. Sammy Young was a veteran, an, a Navy veteran, SNCC organizer, was shot and killed at a gas station when he tried to use a white uh, restroom, which again was illegal. The Civil Rights Act outlawed that. So with that, SNCC finally came out. And, wrote a statement against the war in Vietnam, opposing the war in Vietnam, saying they would support people who chose not to go to Vietnam. And as a result of that, Julian Bond was not seated. <laughs> he was elected to the state legislature at, um, in Georgia, member of SNCC. They refused to seat him. Uh, so this is the reaction, right? Uh, King leads a protest about Bond's uh, failure to be seated, but he's still, you know, but by 67, he's ready. And one of the things that, again, the war's escalating, but he sees a magazine, Ramparts Magazine, um, early in 67, which has a photo essay on the children of Vietnam. And it describes over a million deaths and casualties. I mean, wounding, crippling of children with images of people, napalm, children. Um, And and an essay talking about the the tools of war that America's using, uh, you know, gases, bombing, defoliants. Uh, and, and this really shakes him up. So he, he has to speak out. And he joins a, a march in Chicago, but his big coming out is in New York City. In a speech he gives at Riverside Church. I keep pointing at the wrong thing. Um, and it's called, uh, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break the Silence. Uh, and this is one of the strongest public statements made against the war by a figure of his stature. He spoke for nearly an hour, and I urge you to read this speech. It's really a powerful, well-thought-out analysis of the war and its impact on America and on, of course, Vietnam. Uh, He talked about his own evolution from seeing the war as an enemy of the poor by taking all the resources to a pointed assessment of the war's horrific impact um, on all parts of Vietnam. King concluded that he could not raise his voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly about the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. Um, it was America's initiative to take uh, responsibility to take the initiative to end the war, and he urges the Johnson administration to begin with the cessation of all bombing uh, to open the way to negotiation. The speech um, was a powerful appeal uh, to end the war, but also to face the deeper malady within the American spirit spirit seen in the glaring inequities and injustices in a society that continued to spend more money on military defense than on uh, social uplift. The reaction was predictable. Life magazine described it as a demagogic slander that could have been written by Radio Hanoi, which is the communist government, Um, The Washington Post said King had diminished his usefulness to his cause, his country, and his people. You know, they compartmentalized. This is your civil rights. This is something. King, it's holistic, right? It's impacting the country, and what's happening in Vietnam is the shame of America. Uh, And at this point, uh, uh, so King was not deterred. He felt, he knew, he suspected there'd be this kind of reaction, but he felt someone of influence had to say that America was wrong. I have become so disgusted, he said, in the way the American people are being brainwashed by this administration. Now, I think to speed up because um, we're, but I, people are moving around different ways. Robert Kennedy, poverty is in his sights. And he's on a committee uh, chaired by Joe Clark of um, uh, Pennsylvania, where they're really doing a deep dive into poverty, uh, having hearings and starting to go into the field and just see. Uh, get, get on the ground, see what's going on, uh, and find out uh, what people need. And, uh, and this is Marion Wright. Marion Wright had been a leader of the sit in movement at Spelman, and she was now um, gone to law school and went back to Mississippi, where they only had three black lawyers. So she became the fourth, the first black woman admitted to the bar in Mississippi. And she testifies uh, before um, Clark's committee and says that conditions were worse in Mississippi than they were three years ago when the war on poverty began. And it's a, it's a result of a combination of things. The mechanization of cotton, uh, landowners pushing blacks off the land, uh, you know, making it difficult for them to get access to food stamps, and, and all the rest. But it's, uh, it's a crisis. So they decide to go to um, Mississippi and see for themselves. And they have hearings in Jackson. And here's Fannie Lou Hamer okay, Fannie Lou Hamer, a Blackwell, leaders of the MFDP, they describe the conditions, they describe the challenges around the Head Start program, which they built up, and which the state was taking over with white business leaders and moderates with the support of the Johnson administration. Um, so after hearing this, uh, he decides, I want to go see. So he goes with Marion Wright and Amzie Moore, who you remember uh, was Bob Moses' immediate contact in Mississippi, and he just goes and sees. And he's just just flabbergasted by the poverty, just destroyed by what he sees. Here they are in a shack, windowless shacks, uh, children with bloated stomachs from malnutrition and sores. Um, And uh, he um, he was just shocked. And he goes back to Washington, uh, more determined to just shake the Johnson administration, goes to the Secretary of Agriculture, says, you need to get um, food down there, you know, food commodities, and, and stop charging people with food stamps. If they have no money... They can't spend $8 to get food stamps for their family. And the guy didn't believe him. So he said, okay, send your aides down. The aides go down. Oh, it's right. It's true. It's terrible. So he squeezes some money out of the agriculture department. Um, but, uh, and, and they continue to, to go around. And he develops a close relationship with Marion Wright, who ends up marrying his aide, Peter Edelman. Uh, so 67. That's April with King, this, But the summer of 67, which is known as a summer of love for the counterculture, is a long, hot summer in America's cities. And um, the Harvest of American Racism, which was a report based on research of 23 of the affected cities that had uprisings uh, that summer, uh, concluded that the most salient feature of the disorders was a form of generalized rebellion on the part of certain sections of the Negro community against white control of black areas. In Newark, the the worst were in Newark and in uh, Detroit. Um, In Newark, there were five days of street battles, which approached the scale of Watts. Uh, Many died in the volley of police gunfire. Uh, Six people were killed when police fired indiscriminately into the crowds, uh, including a 74-year-old man who was walking to get his car and a mother who came out to find her children. So it's chaos, right? Chaos. And really, police um, just... Uh, at the end, 26 people were dead, mostly African-American, um, and more than 700 injured. Less than a week later was Detroit. We'll look at that. Uh, exploded into what was called the largest urban disturbance of the 20th century. Uh, but as a contrast to Newark in terms of city leadership and political representation, Detroit had two African-American congressmen that had a significantly uh, m- black middle class, but again, they still had people in poverty, and the police, they had a very progressive mayor, but he could not rein the police in. Uh, And what sparked this was there was an after-hours bar where they were celebrating the return of two veterans from the Vietnam War, and the police raided that, uh, arrested a bunch of people, Uh, that's got things going, and it just escalated um, and went on for four days. Um, And uh, the police first—it it, it grew beyond the control of the police. Governor Romney sent in 8,000 National Guards, guards. Um, and in one of the cases, the National Guard met a flash from a window with a with a gunshot, and they shot a four-year-old girl. The flash was somebody lighting a cigarette. So I mean, this is how yeah, this is is playing out. Um, at the president's request, uh, the uh, At the governor's request, the president sent in the 89th and 101st Airborne Division, along with tanks, machine guns, and helicopters. Many of the troops had recently returned from Vietnam. And when one of the soldiers was asked about his mood heading to Detroit, he said, well, they say war is war. Um, And at the end, 43 people were left dead, 33... 33 of whom were African-American, more than 2,000 injured, and 5,000 arrests. And investigations afterward revealed that some officers and National Guards acted out of a desire for vengeance. Police would take off their badges, the name badges, so they couldn't be identified. Um, there was sniper fire from the LGS motel. They went into the motel. Uh, they executed three boys who, on their knees, uh, not threatening them. One of the officers was tried for murder, and he was acquitted. Um, and there were formal reports of police shootings and National Guard shootings of unarmed men who weren't threatening them. This was a crisis. What America, I mean, this was on the TV, the fifth largest city in the country, and this is what people saw when they put their TV on. Uh, And and the reporting, again, David Brinkley, since Sunday morning, mobs of angry Negroes have paralyzed the city, um, spreading fire and destruction. Military metaphors were used to cover the crisis and reinforced the dominant white opinion of black urban communities as dangerous, violent, and crime-infested, not seeing beneath the surface, or the, uh, how this all played out. Um, the press gave scant attention to underlying conditions that fueled these pitched urban battles, but it did set off a scramble for political advantage. The Republicans started you know, getting on Johnson, saying you haven't done enough to protect people on the street. Um, And uh, Governor Ronald Reagan got into the action, uh, now tatted as a possible candidate for president, uh, and branded the racial strife in Detroit and elsewhere as riots of lawbreakers and mad dogs against the people. Um, President Johnson went on television and delivered an address on July 27th announcing that he had created a commission to investigate the causes uh, of the riot and make recommendations. He denounced the looting, arson, plunder, and pillage and the criminals who committed these acts of violence against the people. He said the FBI would continue to investigate for evidence of conspiracy. He stressed how important it was for law enforcement at all levels to be prepared to stop violence quickly and permanently, and announced that the Defense Department was setting up new training standards for riot control. And then he acknowledged, as if just giving lip service, to the fact that to attack the conditions that breed despair and violence, Um, that he he was committed to that, and he praised his administration for doing the greatest government effort ever in all of American history to meet these ancient wrongs. He's starting to sound like a president we know. Pat himself on the back, you know, and and again, no mention of expanding the war on poverty, really action to begin to deal with those conditions that he acknowledged were at the root of these problems. Um, Um, and then he said, let us pray at the end, in closing. Let us work for better jobs and better housing and better education that so many millions of our fellow Americans need tonight. Robert Kennedy was watching this speech, and he exclaimed with evident exasperation, that's it, he's done. He's not going to do anything for the cities. Um, Frank Mankowitz, who was with Kennedy that night, said, well, what would you do if you were president? He said he would persuade the major TV networks, three of them, to cooperate in producing a documentary, again, showing people, depicting life in a poor black urban community. Let them show the sound, the feel, the hopelessness, what it's like to think you'll never get out. Show a black teenager told by a radio jingle to stay in school looking at his older brother who stayed in school and is out of a job put a candid camera in a ghetto school and watch what a rotten system of education it really is. Film a mother staying up at night to protect her baby from rats. Then I'd ask people to watch and experience what it means to live in the most affluent society in history without hope. was later reflected that the Detroit riots and the terrible feeling Bobby had that night as he watched Johnson had shifted the senator's thinking about running for president. Kennedy described this racial turmoil as the gravest crisis in domestic affairs since the Civil War. Chris King was despairing. Um, He he, uh, told a meeting of the American Psychological Society that it is impossible to overestimate the crisis we are facing. He said it is time to tell it like it is to white America. He testified between the current commission that was set up by Johnson after the Detroit um, riots, and uh, he said, the greater crimes of white society were the real cause of the uprisings, he testified. Backlash, unemployment, racial discrimination, and the Vietnam War. At this SCLC's convention, he declared that he and his organization would very, very definitely Oppose LBJ in 1968 unless he changed his stand on the war. King fought off despair. He told his wife, Coretta, and I think you read this in Adam's book, that people expected him to have answers, and he had none. But he would try and do what he could do to try to figure out a way to mobilize people and help them move ahead and channel the frustration and energy that's, uh, and despair that so many people were feeling. Um, so he he focused initially, his, his, he and his top aides focused on plans for the summer of um, to 68 dislo- to work in northern cities um, and build massive nonviolent demonstrations as a way to channel, again, the frustration and anger and do- boycott schools. Uh, Picket outside of plant gates that discriminate against black workers, um, uh, protest local, state, and federal government—just really, you know, have targets and, and just get people to funnel that energy and draw attention. Um, and um, and during this time, the interesting sort of connection between Kennedy and and King is that Marion Wright uh, was an advisor to Dr. King, and she had become friendly with. Robert Kennedy through her boyfriend, Peter Edelman, and so she went to visit King on her way to Atlanta to see, I mean, to visit Kennedy on her way to Atlanta to see King, so they started talking, and he said, how's Dr. King, and he said, well, he's, you know, he's just, he's full of despair, you know, it's just what to do, and things are just at a boil, I mean, just exploding, and he said, well, he said, I think you should meet all the poor people to Washington, stay there until Congress does something, embarrass them, you know, just force the issue. just get. And so she went to King. It's not to say his idea. King was planning to do something. But um, she went, left his house, went to meet with them. The SCLC was planning the next summer's campaign. King loved the idea. So they began planning what became the Poor People's Campaign, focusing focused on Washington. Um, and... Um, and I was going to ask you, I know we're running towards the end, but anyone want to describe the Poor People's Campaign, what the goal was, because King is, is killed before it, or the strategy? I mean, I sort of laid it out, right, but you know, bringing people, shanties, I mean, to, to just camp out in view of the White House and Congress, um, and have civil disobedience if necessary. But really, uh, and what Adam Fairclough says, what, what King is virtually proposing is a new political movement from scratch. Um, and so he begins organizing for that. And I'm not going to get into it, but I just want to mention to you, like I said, a reminder, you know, Orangeburg happens during this early 68, as things start moving towards this culmination. And that is emblematic, too, about how people have manipulated fear of black power for police crackdowns. And, false arrests, and the rest, um, but the, um, the early months of 68, both King and Kennedy would move forward in what would be their final campaigns. Uh, Kennedy, um, a series of developments early in 68, now Kennedy's thinking about it, because he's worried about the cities, n- not just the war, uh, but a series of developments early in 68 persuaded him to run, and that he could run and actually have a chance of winning. Uh, one was the Tet Offensive which exposed a total bankruptcy of Johnson's policy in Vietnam and really shifted public opinion coming out against America's involvement in the war. Um, And and that doesn't mean you're anti, but you know, the way it was against the policy. It was that, and then there was the Kerner Commission report which was done and really documented. I mean, its findings echoed the conclusions that King and Kennedy had come to several years earlier uh, and which were, Uh, the findings of the Rubber Club Committee. The report documented the consequences of segregation and discrimination that had long permeated American life and was a stinging indictment of white America. It called for nothing less than a complete reordering of national priorities. Unless drastic and costly remedies are undertaken at once, the report said there would be a continuing polarization of the American community and ultimately a destruction of democratic values. President Johnson disagreed with the report and refused to accept it. I mean, he wouldn't let them come and do the usual public signing. He felt betrayed by the people who wrote it. Um, he resented that the report failed to acknowledge, and that goes to your point, Rachel, what his administration had achieved. I can't ignore the progress we've made to write equality on our book of laws. OK, still stuck in that you know, four years earlier. And, just not, and at the same time, he asked Congress for 50,000 more troops to Vietnam. Um, so as you know from uh, reading uh, the, ch- the, the chapter for today, uh, King made his first trip to Memphis on March 18, uh, 1968, to support striking sanitation workers uh, who were seeking union recognition and a wage increase. And two days earlier, Robert Kennedy announced that he was running for president. Um, my next slide? This is King. I mean, that was one of the... the placards that the the work was carried in Memphis. Um, He was 42 years old, Kennedy was, and he said, I run because I'm convinced this country is on a perilous course and because I have such strong feelings about what must be done. And I feel I'm obliged to do all that I can. I run to seek new policies to end the bloodshed in Vietnam and in our cities. I run because it is now unmistakably, unmistakably clear that we Uh, can change these disastrous policies only by changing the men who are now making them. In his brief statement, he acknowledged the challenges ahead, which no one can be certain any mortal can meet. But service in his brother's administration, he says, taught me something about the uses and limits of military power. As a cabinet member and senator, he had seen, quote, the ugly and inexcusable deprivation that caused children to starve in Mississippi, black citizens to riot in Watts, young American Indians to commit suicide because they lacked hope and saw no future, and proud, able-bodied families weighed out their lives in empty idleness in eastern Kentucky and Appalachia. While he did not discount the dangers and difficulties of challenging an incumbent president, he observed, these are not ordinary times, and this is no ordinary election. Two weeks later, Martin Luther King would deliver what turned out to be his final speech in Memphis. He had traveled a long distance from the 27-year-old minister um, who he met in Clark Johnson's brilliant uh, docudrama on boycott, when you think about that. Um, so quickly, what stroke? anything struck you about the tone um, or vision of that speech and maybe connections with the earlier King or, or growth? Anybody? got a
3: little more sort of dismantling or sort of challenging aspects of capitalism is really the underbelly to his tone right, and the strengthening and supporting of black institutions. Um, I think that takes sort of a, a, a position more in the front of his um, discourse than it had previously before it had been more about. Um, sort of political aspirations movements non-violence etc but now the specific target is uh, sort of the, the the dangers of capitalism and how they fuel um, division right and so to not support certain businesses and rather turn to your black businesses strengthen those strengthen those institutions and so you see a little bit more of a um, a, a sort of I'm, I'm trying to be careful in how I say this, not necessarily black power explicitly, um, but, but more towards the tone of supporting um, black communities um, a lo- closer along the lines of what sort of the black power movement was pushing to do.
1: Okay, yeah, good. I mean, and that's why he's supporting the sanitation workers, right? I mean, that you have to unity, you have to stay together, keep the issue justice in your sights, I mean, keep moving. And he kind of does this litany about. Life And he's glad he was born at this point and that he's living now. And it's almost, I mean, you just wonder when he says, I've been to the mountaintop and I may not get there with you, that this prescient, you know, but as we know, when we watch Boycott, he understood that his life was in danger, you know, that that he was living in a way that it could, you know, he was exposed. But at this speech, you know, the fact that what happens the next day, but it's kind of a valedictorian. And in a way, it's hopeful and that people are struggling all over the world. And it's about the nature of struggle, right? And, and it feels like he's coming into a, a place where he is feeling satisfied, well, hopeful. And because of the experience of the movement and the people and Memphis and, and, and the community rallying around these sanitation workers. Um, but as, um, you know, he is, uh, you know, the next day he's, uh, he's killed on the balcony of his Lorraine Motel where they're waiting to go to dinner. And um, James Earl Ray was arrested two months later. I mean, he escaped to London. Um, uh, so that night, or that day, and we were almost to, to the end, so we got a late start. Um, Robert Kennedy was running in Indiana in the primary, and uh, he was flying from Muncie to Indianapolis. John Lewis, great civil rights leader worked in his campaign, and he was setting up a um, rally for Kennedy in the African-American community in Indianapolis. So Kennedy gets on the plane in Muncie. He hears when he gets on the plane that King has been shot. And when he lands in Indianapolis, he hears that he's died. And a report he was there said he just was immobile, right? He just sat with his hand in his head, head in his (laughs) hands. And so he gets off the plane, and the police... The mayor said, you can't go. And the police commissioner says, you don't go over there. You can't go. It's going to be dangerous. He said, maybe for you. He said, I could go with my wife and children and sleep in the street, and I'd be fine. If you can't do that, that's your problem. I'm going. I don't want any police coming with me. So he goes to um, the park, and he sends Ethel to the hotel. And people are waiting. And, and the amazing thing, it's hard for you know, students to understand this, is that... Um, Without cell phones and all that, people didn't know. I mean, I, th- I don't know what time King was pronounced dead, but this was 9 o'clock. He gets to this park, and it's dark, people playing music and people dancing. It's mostly an African-American crowd. Most people did not know, so he told them. And, um, and there's a clip. I, we don't have time to play, but go on, on, on Google because it's five minutes long. He gives this extemporaneous speech. Um, he tells them. Uh, what happened. And he says, let's see, I have some very sad news for all of you uh, and for all of our fellow citizens and for all who love peace all over the world. Martin Luther King was shot and killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. And you hear a gasp coming up from the crowd. No, no. Uh, John Lewis said, the sobriety of his tone moves through the crowd like a wave with his voice close to breaking. He spoke simply and honestly and extemporaneously. He said Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time to the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. The country can move toward greater polarization, black among black people, and white people among white, filled with hatred towards each other. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to comprehend, to replace that violence, that stand of bloodshed that has spread across the land with an effort to understand with compassion and love. And in the course of the speech he mentions uh, because it appears that a white man killed Dr. King. And if you if if you want to be angry at all white men, that you know, that's understandable. But I lost a brother and he was killed by a white man. It's the only time Robert Kennedy ever mentioned his brother's murder or assassination in public, but he felt it was a, you know, some kind of a... Uh, anyway, I urge you to, to look at the speech and, and read it. And, um, and uh, he went on from there. And as you know, uh, so he goes on. He stopped campaigning. The next day, he, gave, he, he canceled all events until King's funeral. But the next day, he gave one more talk in the City Club of Cleveland on the mindless menace of violence. And it speaks to what happened there. It talks about the violence of schools with no books, the violence of no heat in the winter. It's really, I urge you to look at that. I mean, it's, And then that was it. He went to Atlanta and uh, met with Coretta King. Went to see Dr. King twice. He was, um, his, he was laid out in Ebenezer. And he went in the daytime. And then at night, he asked John Lewis to go with him. And they went at 2 o'clock in the morning. And John Lewis describes going in and just paying their respects to... To King, and then he marches, you know, with the people from Ebenezer to Morehouse, and, uh, and he's so it, it started that next chapter, you know, Adam Faircloth said he's the only, many white politicians went now, you know, King's gone, he's, but he was there, he was comfortable, people were glad to see him. Um, and of course, you know, he goes on, he wins Indiana, primary, big thing, he wins in Nebraska, he uh, loses in Oregon, which is a minor setback, but then he goes on to California, which is the make-or-break state. And, uh, oh, I'm doing the wrong thing. doing my, And here he is with the Watts Writers Workshop, his, his people. Um, and he ran an amazing campaign in California, and he won. Uh, and as you know, that um, just minutes, a half hour, not even, after he delivered his comments on winning. Because I was watching a tape of this, and they're trying to go up the air, and they go... News break, you know, Kennedy's been shot, um, and he was shot, and then he died the next, the next day. Um, and, you know, the two of those, uh, and, you know, people say, would he have won? Um, he, he had a very good chance of being nominated. Lyndon Johnson had dropped out at the end of March, and his opponent would have been Hubert Humphrey. Jim McCarthy was weakened by this point. And... Uh, but, uh, but that was not to be. Um, so uh, I've just got, you know, the response, I mean, after Dr. King was killed, cities exploded. Remember, remember what Stokely Carmichael said, don't touch King. Remember on the march when the, the, they tried to rough him up and Stokely wanted to just, like... And over 100 cities exploded after, over the days after King was assassinated. Washington, D.C., on a scale of watts. And it's the first time you had military, federal troops in the Capitol, protecting the Capitol. So it was just that. Kennedy, um, he is carried back from New York to Washington on a train uh, to be buried next to his brother. And just spontaneously, people lined the tracks. And you had a, close to 2 million people lining the tracks all the way down from New York to Washington. So very powerful departures um, and, and, and acknowledgment. Because what's important about them, they're they're people who understood and saw and acted, but how they connected to people in the country at this moment and really were providing a way. With Kennedy's campaign, a new kind of politics that would begin to to address these issues. And Dr. King... It's really getting poverty. And, of course, the poverty campaign bridged racial lines. It really was getting at ways that people could come together and press the country, as Ali said, to be, you know, that it's broken. As he said, we have to change the whole architecture of America. We have to really rebuild America. Um, So we don't want to end on on a down note because I think, well, one thing to say is that, you know, what happens the war on crime, which Johnson had started, he emphasized policing and militarization of the police resources on that, and not so you know not but that. And Nixon is elected, and Nixon amplifies that. He starts the war on drugs. Uh, he incentivizes prison building. Um, it, it really, and so this thing takes off, and you see people talk about you know the rise in incarceration. You just trace it from the Johnson years; it starts and it goes straight through all these administrations, of appealing to the fears of people and ignoring the conditions that people are living in. And, you know, you guys didn't watch The Wire, but what strikes me about The Wire, that's early 21st century, and you're looking at the consequences of looking away. Um, But I think, well, maybe I should ask you while we're wrapping up, um, you know, looking beyond uh, this tra- the tragedy, so that's what we get, we end with that, and it's tragedy. They're, they're gone. But really how they lived, and how they moved through this period in history, which, like this, you know, what did Kennedy say, you know, we are living in a time of chaos, we have two choices. We can face it, and work to change things, or we can turn away and let it fester, and things get carry on. So any thoughts about, um, you know, what the takeaway is from the history of these not just these two individuals, but this period and how these two individu- individuals in particular move through it. Let's see. Yeah, Haley. Kind of
3: like the main thing is even though there were moments of despair and kind of like feeling like there was no moving forward, they continued to move forward and think of other solutions and continue to meet with people. And they made that change or made ways for the change.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, the fact of living a life a certain way, right, and knowing that it's, you know, there's no, do something. I mean, Kennedy had that a ripple of hope, you Just and it spreads out, you don't know where it's going, but you, you participate, and, and you use your, your privilege of education, of, you know, being able to move through and, and sort of see things and um, in other ways, and, and, you know, organizing. I mean, this notion of community empowerment, I mean, what Uh, So all these lessons are rich in the 60s, and I I think with these two, they've been put on a, they're iconic. Oh, the last image is of this in the park, and um, let's see, is that it? The park in, is that stuck? Oh, I'm I'm doing the wrong one. I'm doing my, that, that's in the park where where, uh, Robert Kennedy spoke in Indianapolis, and it's called the Peace Park. And it's, you know, bronze figures of King and Kennedy uh, stretching, stretching out towards each other. But uh, let me read one last quote from Bayard Rustin, uh, who, um, what he said about both of these. And I guess people in the moment said, this is it. You know, I mean, uh, James Baldwin said, uh, we would have had a different world if not, if not for so many assassinations. I mean, the tremendous loss of individuals and of their capacity. I mean, what they represented and how they were involved in shaping the society at a really pivotal moment. And Bayard Rustin said about them, both were fully aware of the risks they ran and the penalties they faced for trying to work against the current American moral grain. Yet they accepted the risk and paid the ultimate price for trying to make a difference in their times and for striving to show mankind that it can be better than it is. So... We'll leave it at that, and we'll have a good weekend. We'll see you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you'd like to hear more about the 1960s civil rights movement, we suggest checking out presidential recordings. Season one includes private phone calls between President Lyndon Johnson, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, and others. Season two, which will be available July 1st, includes the calls of President Richard Nixon. Find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts.